All right, well, if you didn't know that there is a youth group gathering tonight, I see some young people coming in, but otherwise I don't see any of them out here, so we should be good there. All right, well, the title of tonight's message is Genealogies Are Boring. Genealogies Are Boring. Now, this title represents the most common reaction to genealogies by modern readers and perhaps by readers of all time, probably not as much so to people that would have a direct tie or connection to a particular family tree. For example, if we were to take a look at one specific family's family tree here tonight, my odds are that you'd have more interest in that family tree if you were a part of it than say somebody else who had no real connection to that family tree. And so I was thinking about that even in terms of the genealogies of the Bible. They're family trees, but we're not directly a part of them necessarily, though they should be important to us because they point to somebody very important who was the culmination of those family trees, which was ultimately, we know, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And so as you think about what a tree is building towards, things are building towards next generation, next generation, but ultimately, as it looks at the Word of God, that focus was on this, call it the, the perfect human or the right kind of human, this unique God-man, fully God, fully man, Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. You see, we were imperfect humans in the sense that sin had gotten in the way and had tainted all of creation, including, including us, where we had a sin nature within us, we had a tendency or an, inf- were an influence towards sin, and we chose the influence within and without to yield to that and to become identified with that sinfulness that we inherited through our association with our forefather, Adam. And so, as you're thinking about that, we were a fallen humanity. That's what we represented as humanity fell into sin. And so, in a sense, Human beings being now tainted and broken by sin, having no righteousness of their own, and as we've been talking about in the book of Romans, needing that righteousness in order to be made right with God or have fellowship or access to God, we lacked a righteousness that we needed. And so in a sense, we have tainted humanity. Human beings have this problem, but human beings can't face the problem because, fix the problem, because they are the problem. And they're perpetuating that problem as death or sin spread from one man to the next because all have sinned. Again, inheriting that, coming by it honestly, but also choosing sin on and on and on perpetually. So there was a need for this perfect human to fix human problems, which ultimately was the unique God-man. And we had a need for God to take the form of a human being who could then die to solve all of the problems that human beings had in the sense of our problem, our biggest problem with our sinfulness estranging us or alienating us, separating us from a perfectly holy and righteous God. So as you think about genealogies, the stories or the history of people, the history of a particular person though is what we have in view as we're thinking about the genealogies of the Bible and that's going to be true of the genealogies we see here in the first nine chapters of Chronicles, specifically First Chronicles, if we continue that breakdown between First and Second Chronicles. Now, perhaps when you think about people having this reaction that genealogies that I don't directly relate, relate to, genealogies that I don't see an obvious connection between me and that genealogy, those are boring. Well, perhaps that's the reason why many people stop reading through the Bible when they get to sections like this or they skip them altogether. And I know on some of the times that I've read through the Bible, 
I've gotten to sections like this and just went bloop and just flipped to the next page. And I'm not saying that was good. I'm just saying I looked at it. I said, oh, here's a list of how people got to where we got to. They had various descendants, and I kind of understood where they were leading to, and I just kind of skipped through it. So I don't necessarily think that's horrible, but, and this is a natural reaction, I would say, given man's impatience or lack of understanding and a tendency to focus on self when doing anything, but including reading the Bible. So if I have impatience, I have a lack of understanding about how things might have some relevance to me, or I have this tendency and or, I would say, both of these things are usually true, or all three of these things are true. I have this tendency to focus on myself when I'm reading because I tend to put myself first by nature. So when I'm reading even the Bible, I might be saying things like, well, this story is really dragging when I get to a section like this. Or what does this have to do with anything, meaning I don't understand it. So this is really dragging, that speaks to my natural impatience. Or what does this have to do with anything, speaks to my lack of understanding or perhaps your lack of understanding if you're saying that. Or how does this relate to me? And that speaks to your self-centeredness or self-focus as you're reading something. You want to know how does this tie in or how does this relate to me? And the problem with this perspective is that the focus of the Bible is God, not you. So when we're looking at the Bible or the story of the Bible, we're reading through the Bible and we're looking at it with a sense of, this is about me. Tell me about how this affects me. Let's find me in this. We're missing out on maybe the main objective there, which is God revealing himself to us in his story. Now the problem with doing this is throughout the Bible, God, again, he's revealing himself, not He's saying things about us too, but he's really revealing himself primarily, and he's telling his story. Now, though it involves you, the focus is not on you. The focus is on him. And I think we are are well served to remember that or be reminded of that. So part of this revelation that God has in terms of revealing himself, part of that revelation involves the use of genealogies. Now, they serve several key functions in the storyline of the Bible, and tonight we're going to consider a few of those functions as we look at the genealogies that are found in the first nine chapters of Chronicles, of First Chronicles here. So let's take a look. If you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to First Chronicles chapter 1. Now, before I get into these actual nine chapters, and I can tell you right now, we're not going to be going through them in any great level of detail that's not the kind of thing that I think would be a productive use of our time. We're seeking to go through more of an overview of Chronicles. We're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of it, but we're going to make some general observations first about, about genealogies in general. So I want to start with just some general observations about genealogies, and then we'll get into some observations that we can make from these specific genealogies here in the first nine chapters. I would encourage you to take the time to read through them. Now, you might skim through them, but read through them with a sense of what is in here that jumps out at me. How are these broken down? And I'm gonna help you with that. I'll give you a little bit of a sample of how, or explanation of what is the structure, how are these broken down as we go through those nine chapters. But I want to, the bigger picture is what I wanna focus on tonight. Just what is the general observations or the purpose of Genealogy. So I'll start with some general information about genealogies. Genealogies are lists of family lines or descendants. Now, most of you know that. That's all there is. They're lists of family lines or descendants. Now, the Bible includes family lists or genealogies in order to show 
where certain families came from, and why they were important. Now, we know there's one particular family, the family that leads us biologically, genetically leads us to Jesus Christ in the sense that the Savior of the world. This one particular person, this unique God-man that's revealed in the New Testament, how did we get to that person? That's what the storyline is building towards because it's a storyline, it's a story of God's redemptive plan. How God would set about seeking to rescue a fallen man from Genesis and seek to bring about a way to reconcile this, re, this sinful man, this man that's estranged from God and alienated from God, to reconcile that man or redeem that man, reconcile that man to himself or redeem them from the penalty that's owed for, that, for sinfulness which all men are born into. And so as we think about this idea of showing how did we get to this pers- this, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the central theme of the Bible, God's rescue plan for mankind culminating there in the cross work of Jesus on Calvary. That's a lot of what we're after here. Now, we know that promises that God made to a number of different people ultimately culminate in the blessing to the entire world, which is the salvation or the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we'll get into that a little bit more, but that's the idea here. Why why are these lines important? Because what they're building to is important. Now, there's several important genealogies listed in the Bible. Genesis has two main ones. If you look at Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 32, you would see, and if you're making notes, you can take note of this, you would see that it lists the male head of each family from Adam to Noah, from Adam to Noah. You'll see if you're looking at First Chronicles here where we start from. We start from Adam here as well. And we move from Adam to the sons of Noah, In verse 8, where we start off with Ham. Verse 17, where we see Shem. And, let's see, where's the other one? Japheth in verse 5. Japheth, verse 5, Ham, verse 8, Shem, verse 17, and their family lines. Now, so we have similar here in First Chronicles as what you'd see even in Genesis 5, 1 through 32. You see Noah there, and then his three sons listed in verse 4 of First Chronicles. So the male head of each family from Adam to Noah, meaning God isn't in more interested in one particular family than he is in every family of the world or every person in the world. That's why we go all the way back to Adam. That's why Chronicles goes all the way back to Adam. Yes, the nation of Israel is tasked or chosen with a specific mission of being the vehicle or the bloodline that the Messiah would come from. And so we follow their part of the story more so than the rest of humanity. But it's humanity that has a problem. It's not just the nation of Israel that has a problem or that ethnic line. It's the family of all mankind that has this problem of having fallen into sinfulness and being estranged from God by birth and choice such that they have no access to God apart from some intervention by God on man's behalf. Then if you look at Genesis chapter 11, 20 through 26, you're going to see the male head of each family from Noah through the descendants of his three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem, and then from Shem all the way to Abraham. So we're tracking this Abraham to Noah, and then from Noah to his three sons, and from his son Shem, where the birth line of Christ is going to follow, where the blessing is going to follow through that birth line, to Abraham. 
And then if you were to look at other places that you'd find these genealogies that are so boring to people that people struggle with, another main one can be found in Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, 16 through 25. Now that one is going to confirm the importance of the priestly line. So we've been looking at the line of the Messiah, which ends up merging with the Davidic line in, in the sense of the Messiah is going to come through the seed of David, is an additional covenant promise that God makes to David in addition to Abraham, David being an heir or a relative of Abraham, but now God's saying, and now through you specifically in your kingdom, your, your position as a king of Israel, we're going to have this royal bloodline that's going to lead to the Messiah, just like we're going to have this priestly bloodline that will lead to the Messiah. So Exodus 6, 16 through 25 lists the family line from Levi through Aaron's sons as we're looking at this priesthood or that angle of things. But both of them are pointing towards this coming great high priest, Jesus Christ, and king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ, a culmination of that in one person. Now Matthew contains an important genealogy from Matthew 1, 1 through 17, the New Testament is going to start with the genealogy too. So you think about it, man, genealogies, genealogies, genealogies. If Chronicles is the last book of the Jewish Old Testament, that the arrangement of the traditional Jewish Old Testament, and it starts with nine chapters of genealogies, and then you go to the New Testament after this silent period, you come to the New Testament, you open up the very first book, the Gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew, and you see that the first 17 verses pick up with genealogies, you'd say, maybe there's something I've been missing in my understanding of genealogies. Well, what is so important about Matthew's genealogy? Well, Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy to prove that Jesus is the descendant of both King David and Abraham, just as the Old Testament predicted. Why don't we just turn there, just get a little page turning if I'm already numbing you with this conversation of genealogies wake up a little bit while turning our pages to Matthew 1, 1. And we just see how the Gospel of Matthew starts. What does it say? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, how is he described? The son of David, why? Because God is a promise-keeping God, and Jesus Christ, the Savior Messiah, was a fulfillment of promises made to David. We call it the Davidic covenant. What's the second description? The son of Abraham. Why? Because God is a promise-keeping God. He said that through you, through your descendants, all of the nations and hence all of the people of the world will be blessed by this future offspring of yours. Here he is. That's the idea. And here he is. So you think about that. He opens that, in a sense, to prove that Jesus is the fulfillment of so much of the Old Testament prophecy. Now, in this genealogy, we see the royal line of Jesus, if you keep going in those 17 verses, the royal lineage of Jesus. Now, Jesus will be the blessing of Abraham to the whole world. That's the other aspect of that, is showing that how is this a fulfillment of that? Because the Savior came to seek and to save that which was lost. He was not willing that any should perish, but that all 
would come to repentance, a place of changing their mind about who they had been trusting in and now placing their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ so that they could be saved from the hell they deserve to a heaven they don't. That is the good news message that we're to be getting excited about each and every day as we live in light of the work, what God has done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, Christ's sacrifice for us, which is what allows us to have, one, a future, to have a present, though, too, as we, having been born into this royal family ourselves now, having been adopted in there, being viewed as royalty in a sense because he's the king and we're now his children, princes and princesses of heaven in that sense, we're to wake up with this mentality that says that because of my standing and my position in his family, because of everything that I've inherited, I've inherited including his, God's very spirit living inside of me, I can now live a life that would be filled with God's kind of peace, God's kind of joy, God's kind of purpose right here in time. We also see in this lineage in Matthew, this genealogy in Matthew, that Jesus is the royal son of David and the Savior, the Messiah that all of Israel has been waiting for. We also see that he's, one, he's the one the prophets wrote about. He's the one the psalmist sang about. We know all of this because Matthew tells us in a genealogy that carefully reveals the hope that has arrived in Jesus. The long-awaited messianic hope is here. Now, Luke contains another, as we're talking about important genealogies in the Bible, Luke contains another one. So Luke chapter 3, 23 through 28, and this list goes backwards, beginning with Joseph, Jesus' legal father, not his biological father, but his birth father, his legal father, I should say, his, his recognized human father. And it runs through David the king, Jacob, Abraham, going backwards, all the way back to Adam, the few, first human. Now, that's a little bit different than Matthew going all the way back to Adam. Because while Matthew's genealogy goes back to Abraham and shows that Jesus was related to all Jews, Luke's genealogy goes back to Adam showing that Jesus is related to all human beings. And this is consistent with Luke's picture of Jesus as the Savior of the whole world, not only the Messiah of Israel, but for the whole human race, the Savior of the whole human race. So those are some of the important genealogies that you've probably struggled with at times if you've been reading through the Bible. You've said, what was the point of this? It was to give us that background to prove that Scripture is true, to prove that what God said is true, that when God makes promises, He's a faithful God who can be relied upon. Now you say, what is the point of genealogies? And this is certainly not going to be exhaustive, just like that wasn't an exhaustive list of the genealogies that we can find in Scripture. What is the point of genealogies? I'm just going to give three points, I guess, or options here to consider. One of them is that genealogies confirm the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, the Bible is full, filled with prophecy, especially as it relates to the Old Testament prophecies, especially as they relate to the Messiah. So many prophecies were fulfilled just by the birth and coming and then the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension back into heaven. See, the Messiah was prophesied to come from the line of David. We see that in Isaiah 11:1, 1, including many other places. But if that was a prophecy, then how would a lineage prove that? A lineage would prove that by saying, and here's the family tree. Follow the dots, connect the dots. Here's how we got from here to here. So that would be important, right? And by recording his lineage in Scripture, God confirms that Jesus was descended from 
David, and you can see that in those two passages that we talked about, both which include David in that line leading to the Savior. And, and we know that even as we think about this book of Chronicles, that the book of Chronicles, by focusing in a huge section in First in Chronicles and into Second Chronicles, a huge section of this is focused on the, the kings of Judah, the story of Judah. It's, the, it's a summary of the whole story of, of the nation of Israel, but focusing specifically on the, the line of Judah, the Judah, Judah kings. And as you think about that, we're looking for a more perfect king. That's sort of what's being built towards is these exiles that have no king, no real king anymore. They're living in a post-exilic world where it's just a shambles or a shell of what used to exist, even though they've returned. The walls have been rebuilt to some extent with Nehemiah. The, the temple, the priest's sacrifice, sacrificial simple system, the temple is back in, in business to some extent with under uh, Zerubbabel and Ezra leading up that charge. But it's still just a shell of what it used to be. There's no line of David reigning on the throne as had been promised. And so people are sort of given this idea that the connection of all this is that David was being pointed to symbolically as this is what the ideal king might look like. And that's why when we look and in, get further into this story, we're not going to have all of David's failures being put on display in First Chronicles. We're going to have a bunch more of his successes put on display. We're going to skip across some of his failures because this is a picture of the coming perfect king, the king of kings. And that's supposed to give us hope as we're looking at this from the perspective of somebody who is, has this expectancy related to the coming Messiah, the one who could restore Israel and could bring a fulfillment to these promises that had been made to Abraham, reconfirmed to Jacob, through in his, renamed Israel, and then reconfirmed to David, and so on and so forth. And so that's what we see, and that's why that's genealogies, there's a point to them, why they're important. A second thing to consider or observation to consider is that genealogies also help substantiate the Bible's historical accuracy. You know, many people have taken the position that the Bible is just a metaphor, the Bible is, is figurative, the Bible is just a fable, the Bible is maybe just a parable, it's a collection of, of make-believe stories that are supposed to teach moral principles and maybe spiritual values that that's all that the Bible is, that it's not, it's not true. And so what better way to confirm the historicity, I think is how you say it, the, the historical accuracy of the Bible than to include, no, these are real people that actually existed. This is who their father was. This is who their children were. This is where their, their land was. This is the area they occupied. This is the nation that became associated with them. This is the nation that became associated with them. This are some of the things that happened during their lives. These are other things that occurred. See, by emphasizing and elaborating on family histories, we observe that the Bible is not simply a collection of spiritual teachings, principles, and object lessons, but rather authentic historical truth. An actual man named Adam had actual descendants and therefore his actual sin has actual consequences for the entire human race of which you are one. Now follow, the, if, if Adam wasn't even a real person, how could his sin and then the follow-up of that sin as it related to all of his future descendants, how could that have any implications on you? 
Why would it even be something that would be important if it were never even true to begin with? But no, Adam was a real person just like you're a real person as you sit here flesh and blood. And he had a real problem and so do you. And I never would have necessarily gotten that from a genealogy before. You know, show of hands if you had thought of that before. Real people with real problems. And that's why we would list this like that. Now, a third thing to consider in terms of what is the point of genealogies is genealogies also reveal the personal nature of God and his interest in individuals. The personal nature of God and his interest in individuals. See, genealogies show how aware, involved, and interested God is in people. How aware, involved, and interested God is in people. The Bible mentions people by name. Real people with real histories and real futures and in the context of the gospel message, real, a real problem with sinfulness. God cares about each person and the details of his or her life. That's one thing that you could take away by reading all of these names. These people and their stories and their history would have been lost to time, but they're listed here. Not all of these people that are listed in there's on and on and on it goes in these, in these chapters. Not all of them are even mentioned elsewhere. There's one place in here, I didn't make a note of it, so I won't be able to find it just off the cusp, but there's a guy, he's mentioned just in passing, and then he has a prayer that's mentioned, and God is said to have answered that prayer, and then it moves on to the next person. That's the only thing ever said about that person in a list of all these other names. A real God who is very personal and is interested in people, individual people. Why else include a little nugget like that? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. Compare that to the description found in Psalm 139. Let's turn there for a second. Just because otherwise I'm, I'm summarizing this so much, we're not going to actually get that much scripture per se because I'm having to do an overview in order to get through nine chapters here. Look at Psalm 39. I know many of you are familiar with it, but just ask if this isn't consistent with this idea that we have an aware, involved, and interested God as it relates to people. That it's not just a mass of humanity that God is interested in, but individual, individual people or members within that mass of people. Psalm 139, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me, a personal God. You know my sitting down and my rising up, not just sometimes aware, always aware. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. Now catch this, and are acquainted with all my ways. Who needed to hear this tonight? For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before, protected me, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, where can I go from your spirit? You know, that reminds me of where could you go that God's love wouldn't be with you? There's nowhere you could go that God's love wouldn't find you because God is ever with you. God is intensely interested in your life and he loves you desperately. Maybe that's what you needed to be reminded of tonight. 
You keep reading. Where could I flee from your presence? Then he goes, he says, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall punish me? No, lead me. And your right hand should hold me. Not smack me around because I can never get it right. Hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall follow me, even the night shall be light about me, indeed the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day in terms of, in God's view, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I've known you since before you were born, child. Matt, think about the, f the, the dads and the moms that talk to their children while they're still in their stomachs, still in, they're still in the womb. That's the idea. I will praise you, what's the conclusion? For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O, o God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord? We're talking about righteous indignation towards those who are rebelling and rejecting God intentionally and actively, who hate you. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred, meaning righteous anger. I count them my enemies. Now, how does this end, though? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Meaning, I don't even know all of the things that I should be aware of. I need you to reveal them to me, God. Verse 24, and see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Do we have a personal God that is interested in people individually? The answer is yes. And genealogies help to show that, how aware involved and interested God is in people. Now, they also show that God has been using, as we talk about God's personal interest in people, awareness of people, genealogies also show that God has been using all types of people to move his plan forward. God has been using all types of people to move his plan forward. So even if you look at some of the folks in, the, in Luke and in Matthew that are listed, even people like Rahab, for example, you just think of people that God has used who were willing to be used because they responded by faith to the truth that God had presented to them that was right in front of them. That should be an encouragement to you. See, God, this includes you. You're part of God's plan. So those are at least three things in terms of things you could observe or consider related to what is the point of genealogies. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time making some observations regarding these specific genealogies in First Chronicles 1 through 9, these chapters 1 through 9. Now, before we do kind of uh, how these things are organized, which will take us a little bit of time, I want to just kind of zoom out and make some bigger picture observation. Now, these genealogies here, nine chapters worth, they represent the most extensive collection of genealogies in the Bible. Right here, we have them right in front of us right now. 
Now through them, the author is summarizing the entire Old Testament storyline by naming all the key characters, especially as it relates to the Messianic line or to Judah. They're all right here. How did we get to Judah? How did then we get to David? How do we get from David to the coming Messiah, which is where the New Testament picks up? They provide an overview of the history of God's work from creation through the captivity of his people, meaning starting with Adam and bringing these post-exilic Jewish readers up to speed. This is where we're at right now. This is where humanity started. These are the key characters along the way, and this is how we got to where we are right now with the present day descendant of David. And so that's very fascinating that bring them up to speed because this is now going to be a reminder, a word of encouragement, if you will, that God has made these promises. God had a start. He had a plan. He is working towards the fulfillment of that, and we're not experiencing it right now because they know that this post-exilic experience is not the full restoration that God had spoken of through the prophets and that they had been thinking about in terms of getting through the 70 years of exile. Now they're a, a great number of years after that and they're still seeing that this isn't what we were expecting. Where's the hope gonna be found? The hope's gonna be found in, in that the story hasn't ended yet. The story is still a work in process. Now this historical summary in turn taught the exiles returning from Babylon about their spiritual heritage. So it was not just that we're a part of this special nation of lights that God has chosen to be a priesthood that could be speaking my truth and shining my truth into the lives of people throughout the whole world, could draw people to the truth of God through our, willing, our willingness to be ambassadors for him. No, it's more to that. This is also our spiritual heritage, written from a priestly point of view. As a nation, in an effort to inspire them to trust God and fulfill the mission, that God had assigned them. So as a part of that, Abraham's family takes center stage to emphasize the importance of God's covenant promises to the plan of redemption, the plan of salvation of all mankind as it relates to all mankind. Now within that larger overview, two secondary lines get special emphasis. So when you're reading through this on your own, you're gonna see that the royal line of David gets extra attention. And as I mentioned even in our introduction to the book, the priestly line of Levi is going to get extra attention. Why? Because it's foreshadowing the Messiah as the king of kings and, as I said earlier, the great high priest. Now, it seems appropriate given the intended objective of informing or reminding these post-exilic Jews of where they came from and why there is still reason for hope for the future of Israel and all mankind despite the present circumstances that they face. Now, that hope is through the blessing associated with the Messiah and Savior. And then finally, these genealogies also provide post-exilic Israel with a reminder of God's universal and ongoing work in the world and to also encourage them to be the holy vessels or nation, the nation of lights that God envisioned them to be. That was what God planned for them to be. So tell the story of here's your heritage. These are those that have gone before you. I'm going to mention how you were entrusted with this mission, and we'll develop that further as we get into the, re the rest of the book, two books put together in one book. 
part of that is you're living in this, this is a faithful remnant that has returned. They have not returned to the full or the final reconciliation or restoration, I should say. But along the way, God has always intended for the mission to remain the same, which is now that you're sort of caretakers in a sense of this, the purpose of God that's going to be carried out as promised through these covenant promises through you as a people, you're caretakers of that and your mission was the same, is the same now as it, as it had been assigned to begin with, which was to be a blessing to the whole world as lights to the nations. Do you remember that? Would you be reminded of that? Now, I'll make an application here, not, not from the text here, but just in our own lives because of the similarity and the overlap is so obvious. What, what is the mission that God has tasked you and I with as a part of the present dispensation, the age of grace, the, the church age? To be lights, to be lights to all the nations, but lights to all the people, the people that are living in darkness. Satan has veiled their eyes. The, the darkness has permeated their thinking as it permeates ours when our focus isn't on Jesus Christ. Are there times where you need to be reminded of the mission? So you can have a renewed purpose, or a renewed sense of this is what I'm supposed to be all about. Not pumping that out through my flesh, but living out, being a reflection of the life that God is working through me, through his life working through me, through his spirit, through his power, through his, through his influence in my life. That I could be reminded, hey, you're still here. Yeah, the situation around us is, is bleak at times because you live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You live in the darkness, but you're to shine as lights. Now think if you had this heritage. We, you know, we heritage trail Bible church. The verse we have on our bulletin is a heritage of, of this association with this faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And if you were to look back at the, those faithful that had gone before, would being reminded of that tree, that line that you had become a part of, would that renew your sense of purpose for the present by looking back at God's purpose for God's people for all of history? I, I think it should. That's really jumped out at me as I was looking at this. We're to be a continuation, not, not, the, not in the specific promises to the nation of Israel, but a continuation of God's bigger plan which is to shine his light into the places and spaces that need Jesus Christ. So that was a, that's one takeaway here. Now you could see the original kind of call to that in Exodus 19, verse 6, which says, you, he's speaking to the nation of Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy or set-apart nation. For no purpose? No. It's, it's said elsewhere to be a light to the nations. We're told elsewhere that Israel will one day fulfill that mission. The question is, are we going to be willing to, in the, for the time being, fulfill that mission of being lights?
Not when we're so focused on ourselves that we're not going to let God have his way in our lives. We're not going to live for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Again, not through self-determination, but through just enjoying the Lord and then letting him fulfill his purposes in our lives. Now, the organization of these genealogies, we'll kind of break them down now. Again, we don't have enough time to like read through them, but if you want to make some just general notes that would give you sort of the breakdown, if you have a study Bible, it probably does that for you anyway. But we start with chapter 1, verses 1 through 27, which is the genealogy from Adam to Abraham. So we have Adam to Abraham. Now this is included for continuity and to highlight the, universe, the universal nature of God's redemptive plan within history and relative to all mankind. I can't state that enough because I've, I've, known, I've known people to sort of lose track of that. The, the big picture, the big picture is God's grace on display, God's love for mankind, God's plan to restore, redeem, and reconcile that which was lost through rebellion and rejection of him. Now, one-third of human history is covered in 27 verses of a genealogy that lasts for nine chapters. So one-third of human history hasn't even occurred, more than that. But in 27 verses of one chapter, we have this sort of overview of everything leading up to the call of Abraham. Much the same as could be said about Genesis, where in 11 chapters, we have 2,000 years of human history covering the story of mankind leading up to the call of Abraham. Now, the call of Abraham isn't the issue so much as it is the promises made to Abraham by God and then God's sort of mission to him that I'm going to work through you and your offspring to bring about the greatest rescue that's ever, the greatest rescue story that's ever been told. That's the, that's the, the focus. Now, although much of the f- storyline as we look at the Old Testament here, focuses on Israel's history, that would make sense if you think about it, given Israel's role as being the vehicle that would lead us to the Redeemer or the Messiah. It doesn't mean that the rest of humanity isn't still moving along too or going through living life too, that there aren't men of faith in other places that there aren't people responding to God's truth in other places. It's just that the storyline of the Bible is a story of what? Reconciliation, redemption, and rescue. If we're going all ours there. So we focus the story on the storyline that's building toward this climax that is the person and work of Jesus Christ, the culmination of that plan. So that's what we have in the first 27 verses. Then from verse 28 of chapter 1, through verse 34, we have a very short section here that takes us from Abraham to Jacob. So short work is made of the progression from Abraham to Israel, who is, is, is what Jacob is renamed as. And Abraham's heritage is important enough that meaningful space is allotted to Esau's line too. So from 35 through the end of the chapter, you actually have more written about Esau's line than you do have about Israel's line in that section because there's going to be an entire chapter dedicated to Jacob's line or Jacob's story. But God is so interested in this story or the critical nature of Abraham as a key figure in all this that Esau's story isn't overlooked either. And so you see that there in those sections where you come up to Jacob and then you have Esau's line there even though the Messiah came through Jacob. 
And the same is true for the mention that is made of all of Abraham's children. Ishmael's is mentioned. The children that come through Keturah are also mentioned. Why? Because they're a part of the story of Abraham, but they're not the focus. How do we know that? Because then you'll turn to the third chapter. Sorry, the second chapter, and you'll have 55 verses dedicated to the genealogy of the 12 sons of Jacob, again, known as Israel. So we had a half of a chapter dedicated to Esau's line, but the whole, this whole chapter lays out the children or the lineage of Jacob, and of course it makes sense in the context because we're, we're saying the whole story matters, all people matter, matter, but I'm wanting to emphasize the vehicle that's going to get us to the Savior. Then we have in chapter 3, all of chapter, or actually most of chapter 3 anyway, the genealogy of the family of David from verse 1 through verse 24. And this represents a continuation of the line of Judah. So Judah's story was told as part of those 55 verses in chapter 2. But now we're going to focus in on the royal line. The record is going to limit itself not just to the whole story of Judah, but this specific story of the royal line of David that was introduced in chapter 2, verse 15. Now it's going to tell this story for about five centuries and take us to about 500 B.C., bringing it up to, bringing them slowly through the storyline of their history, of their past. And the lineage is, a natural, is naturally given extensive consideration given the associated covenantal and messianic promises and prophecies that are tied to David. And so the author uses this lineage to bring the reader up to the present time. Now we have the biggest section in here, and some of you are, th are thinking we won't get through this, but I'm not going to go through it at length, but chapters 4 through chapter 8, verse 40, so a, a chunk of about four chapters there, is used by the chronicler, the chronicler to show the genealogy of the 12 tribes. So we had mention of the 12 sons and some of their lineage in chapter 2, all of chapter 2, but now in these four chapters, it's going to build further than that. And the chronicler spends five chapters outlining the tribal heritage of each of the 12 tribes associated with each of Jacob's 12 sons. Now, a couple of takeaways, and if you take the time to read through that yourself, I think you'll benefit from it. By the end of this, you'll have read through the longest book in the Old Testament, Chronicles, if, if you keep up with kind of how we're studying this book. But one of the things that you have to note is that the history of Levi is given more than twice as much room or coverage, so to speak, as that given to any other tribe, and it reinforces the emphasis on the priestly line. So we had this emphasis on the royal line, the line of the king, the king of kings that's coming. Now we have this extra emphasis placed on the priestly line, the great high priest, which will be Jesus Christ. See, the priestly tribe of Levi was given great importance in the post-exilic period because of the temple and the rituals which were put back together, put reinstituted. The coverage of Levi reflects the enormous significance of this tribe both for the chronicler himself and for this post-exilic community. So that makes sense. The emphasis on Judah and Levi in these genealogies highlights the focus of the chronicler's hope and faith. It's tied up in these prophetic promises. Two things marked the true Israel, the king and the priest. And these two roles would be united in one man, Jesus Christ, and that was where the hope would come from. And so that gets us through, gets us to the beginning of chapter 9. Now we have nine full 
chapters tied up in these genealogies. And this last one is the genealogy, well, there's two things in it, but it's the genealogy of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The the final genealogy lists families resettling Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile, and that joins the present with the past. So we've gone through all this past, we've brought them up to speed with the Davidic line, come to the current time with the Davidic line, told them about, reminded them about these promises that were made to Abraham, reinforced reinforced with Jacob, then added to and, and reinforced again with David. And this story of hope as it's pointing to these, this Messiah and these others acting as a picture of less than ideal king. And one day we'll have the ideal king, the perfect king, symbolized through David, but the king of kings. And so that builds us up to then these that have returned from exile. And it's through this extensive list of the names of resettling ancestors that the restoration community is directly linked to the 12 patriarchs of Israel. Now, think about that. We're, we're wanting to have this personal connection to, to encourage these people to have a hope, to stay the course, to remain faithful to the Lord, to be that faithful remnant that is looking expectedly, expectantly at the coming Messiah, for the coming Messiah. So the purpose of the list was twofold. One, to legitimize the restoration community as the rightful heirs, of the promises made to the patriarchs and the kings of Israel. And the second thing is to bolster the morale of those Israelites or Hebrews returning to Judah from Babylonia and inspire full participation in the restoration effort. Now, when you understand the context that it's written, that would make sense that we would then include their own part in this tree as a part of connecting them to the past. The idea is telling them effectively, you represent the faithful remnant of regathered Israel eagerly serving as caretakers of this messianic hope. You, that's, that's your role. You're caretakers of this messianic hope that gives hope to all men because of the promises made to your ancestors. Now, I do want to note in passing that there's not complete agreement about this. Some believe that this chapter catalogs the family groups that lived in Jerusalem just prior to Jerusalem's capture and destruction in 586 BC. I think that's the minority view, and it doesn't make the connection that I think the other view would make in terms of connecting the present to the past. So you can look in that more if you want and reach your own conclusions. Now it ends with this genealogy of Saul. So our last nine verses, chapter 9, 35 through 44. Chapter 9, it ends with this brief, brief history of Saul's lineage which is repeated from the list given in the section about the history of Benjamin. So this had already been stated in chapter 8, 29 through 38, and now it's going to repeat it again. But what is it doing? It's setting up the transition to this extended historical overview of the royal line of kings in the line of Judah, beginning with David and and extending to the or through the deportations, captivity, and exile. So remember, we're trying to bring people up to speed who are reading this from post-exilic Jewish readers, bringing bring them up to speed. And so that's, there's not a lot of emphasis on Saul because Saul wasn't a part of this royal line, this line of Judah. He wasn't a part of this hope. Remember, if they're caretakers of this messianic hope, that's the thing that the writer, the chronicler, is trying to impart to these people, just like we're caretakers of a hope, right? They were caretakers of a hope. You're a caretaker of a hope. Do you see that? 
That's, that's the idea is that think about where you come from and God's faithfulness in the past and how that reminds us that we have something to be excited about in the present. And so that's how these nine chapters are sort of broken down. That's a general overview, obviously, of them. But as I was thinking about, like, takeaways, looking to the past can provide hope for the future when believers look back at God's faithfulness and recall God's promises. Now consider how these genealogies do that. Looking back, we see the hand of God from the dawn of creation all the way into this determination to create a mission, a mission-empowered nation to be lights to all people so that they could come to a saving knowledge of the rescue that only God could offer. Doesn't that give hope? How about looking back and seeing God's faithfulness to bring this thing along, bring the story along to this present time that they're sitting in now. They've been brought up to and connected with the past through all of these genealogies, and now they're sitting there with this messianic hope themselves. And they're looking back and they're saying, remember the promises that God made to Abraham. Remember the promises that he made to Jacob. Remember the promises that he made to David. God is going to fulfill those promises because he's never failed yet and he won't start now. That's sort of the idea. Now, as much as anything, that's the purpose of these genealogies and chronicles. God made promises to a real person, Abraham, and his real descendants. Those promises were confirmed to a real Jacob and his real descendants, which included this post-exilic audience. Those promises were expanded and confirmed to a real David who was a picture of the coming Messiah or ideal king. The rest of Chronicles then will dive more deeply into the rest of the history of Judah in order to reinforce the ultimate conclusion. And the ultimate conclusion that we have to remember even in our lives today, but in their lives looking at sort of a tough set of circumstances that they were living in, is that the story isn't over. And there is still a future hope to look forward to. Do you remind, are you reminded of that tonight as you sit here? The story isn't over. There's a hope that we're looking forward to expectantly with eagerness. There will be a future king and priest who will fulfill God's promises to Israel and also bring blessing to all the nations or people of the world. That's sort of how these nine chapters are intended to lay the groundwork for what then continues thereafter. Let's pray to Heavenly Father. Thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this overview. I pray that you just help us to even, if we have a general sense that certain parts of your word are boring, that we would change our thinking about that, that we would see that you, being a perfect author, wouldn't waste time with things that were useless, and that we would pray for wisdom and guidance so that we could find meaning in things that we don't understand or we're struggling to get any application out of. Pray that though, even if we can't, we would still trust you and remember that you're a perfect God who knows best and that your ways are not our ways and there are gonna be things that maybe we don't understand this side of glory. But pray that we would have a renewed interest in you and a focus on you and we would let you even provide us the wisdom and illumination that's needed to understand your truth if we would just pray for it and trust you to work in and through our lives to provide what is needed as it relates to your revelation to us. Thank you for this time with other believers here tonight in Jesus.